let's hmm let me read to you I want to read to you an email from scripture memory guys Dakota sent an email just to say thank you he said thanks again for <clears throat> uh, the opportunity to serve the folks at Hill Village Bible Church last weekend. We were so encouraged by the response and the congregation's appetite uh, for, the, for God's word. He said, I think you summed it up well on our way to your house on Friday. A revival is happening in Hill. He said, we're already looking forward to the next event. Let's keep that conversation going. And uh, just thanked us again for hospitality and time together. So grateful for that. We had a really wonderful time with them, really special ministry. Appreciate their heart for the Word of God and love for the Word of God. Uh, it was great. Men's prayer breakfast on Saturday morning. Uh, we did not include that in this week's email, so letting you all know. Stephen, you can come too. Saturday morning. <clears throat> if you come, though, you have to bring apple cider donuts. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> But, uh, yep, so we're looking forward to men's prayer breakfast. I don't think I have any other announcements unless I'm, well, I'm definitely forgetting something, but unless something more important. Let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll look at Isaiah 53. Father, thank you so much for the time that you give to us each week to be able to open your word and to take time just to stop and to consider it. Lord, how we love your word. How we love how it speaks to our heart, uh, moves us, and um, Lord, makes us more like you. We pray that this evening you would uh, free our mind of the distractions and the worries and cares of the week and allow us, Lord, just a few moments to focus upon your word, to let it seep into us, to let it fill our heart. Uh, Lord, pray that you would just use it in a great and mighty way. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I did go visit um, Jeanette's husband, Frank Albert, today at the New Hampshire Veterans Home. And uh, he is on hospice care. Um, and uh, you know, obviously none of you have ever met him. He was there before Jeanette started coming. But just pray for her and them as they go through this time. Very difficult. He's uh, obviously battling dementia and different things. And so it's a hard, those are hard visits. Um, but um, we were able to read together and pray together, and um, I think it was a blessing for them. And um, Yeah, just uh, keep them in prayer as they navigate that very, very difficult thing. So, all right, Isaiah chapter 53 in verse 9, specifically, uh, verse 9. And tonight, of course, continuing our series on the Messiah in the Old Testament, and seeing verse uh, Isaiah 53 and verse number 9. Andy and Stephanie, I promised myself before tonight, I said, I will not call out Andy and Stephanie. So I just want you to know, we're going to break the streak. It's not going to happen, okay? <laughs> All right, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence neither was any deceit in his mouth. And we're going to focus specifically on this word, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Over the last couple of weeks, we have seen the Messiah would be poor 
and meek and humble and tender and compassionate and a worker of miracles is what we looked at last week. And because of this, the common people loved him and thronged to him. He was one of them. He was not proud and arrogant, as so many of the religious leaders of the day. And he, of course, showed compassion to everyone. He did not just focus on those who were important or wealthy. And today, this evening, we'll look at this verse where we see that he was without guile. The English word for guile or deceit here means craft, crafty or cunning, deceitful or to disguise. Uh, The Hebrew word means trickery, deceit, deceiving, fraud. And so you kind of get the idea. Based on these definitions, to speak or act with guile is to be untruthful and seeking to trick or deceive people. Trying to trick or deceive. And of course, here in verse number 9, we see uh, in in the, the prophecy about the Messiah, that he was, there was no deceit in his mouth. There was no trickery. There was no untruthfulness. There was nothing that uh, he ever spoke that had any malintent or uh, any hypocrisy, right? Think about all of the potential sins of the tongue and, uh, you know, none of that here from our Savior. It's a beautiful a prophetic statement. Look at 1 Peter 2.22 and see Peter's testimony. 1 Peter 2.22. Uh, look at verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow his steps. He did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were a sheep going astray, but now are returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. And so Peter's testimony is that there was no guile found in his mouth. Now, of course, he's uh, quoting from Isaiah chapter 53 here, but uh, I think because Peter had firsthand testimony uh, and exhibited or or observed Christ in a number of circumstances over three years. And you remember how in this time the, the parent or the teacher and student relationship was one where uh, they were together uh, continuously, very rarely having moments of time. Um, Jesus sending his disciples away for a few days and preaching and then coming back. I mean, that was a, an exception during the three-year window. So Peter would have known and seen and observed and lived with him. You know how we all come to church together and we feel like we know each other and then you, you go spend time with somebody in their home, and you're like, oh, I didn't expect that, or I didn't see that come in, or, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that you, you know, had this hobby or that. Like, you don't really know someone until you really live with them, right, for a period of time. All that to say, well, 
You two have been living together for quite a while now, haven't you? A little bit. How many years is it today, actually? 38. He knew that. He, you, he was trying to say it. Jump. <laughs> Jump right. uh, okay, 38 years. Oh, didn't mean to open that one up. <clears throat> uh, but, uh, right, until you, you live with someone. And so Peter's testimony is that he you know, was up close and personal. He wronged Christ. Uh, he denied him, and he saw Christ's loving response to him. Uh, he saw him, first, you know, first person witness of Christ getting beat and getting you know, uh, abused and um, ultimately crucified. Peter was there and saw it, and yet he was you know, marveling at the response that he did not revile again, he did not threaten again, uh, he did not return um, the evil that he was receiving. Instead, he took it upon himself. Uh, this is, an, this is a, a, I think, a powerful testimony because it's a first-person testimony. Look now at John chapter 1 and verse 14. These would be descriptions of Jesus that John, that John records. And while not necessarily this, in the same way, I think, as Peter, they're, they're powerful because they're descriptions of Jesus that John writes. And of course, John again, first person, knew Jesus, was close to Jesus, was a disciple that Jesus loved, right? So when he writes these words, he's also testifying of Christ's uh, character in this. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we, the disciples, beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now this could be, I think John could potentially mean this in two ways. Of course, the first is simply that we saw his work and we saw him heal and we saw him, you know, his ministry. You could consider that glory. But also remember, John was one of the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he beheld Christ's glory uh, in its brightness and uh, holiness. And so I think that's, that's also powerful. John 14, 6, we know... Uh, of course, this verse, Jesus testifying of himself. In verse number six, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, Jesus could not possibly, of course, claim to be the truth unless he was indeed speaking truth, right? A guile could not be found in his mouth and for him to honestly say uh, that I am the truth. And so this is, I think, uh, his own uh, testimony personally. John uh, chapter 16 and verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, it is expedient for you to go away. Uh, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Uh, goes on to explain, of course, the role of the Comforter. We'll be looking at this passage uh, on at sun, on Sunday school this week. Right. Excited about that. And then John 18.37. John 18.37. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest I am a king. To this end I was born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Verse 38, Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? 
ask the wrong question. What's the right question here? Who is truth? Who is truth? And Jesus would say to him, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. Um, Interesting dialogue there, of course, as, as we know. And then finally, of course, Jesus lived and spoke only the truth, not as the religious leaders of his day or even today who speak with guile and seek to trick uh, people with their wily words. Um, Of course, the religious leaders of our day are full of uh, deceit and trickery. Uh, I just would say to you all that nearly every person you see on TV professing to preach or declare the word of God is almost, I mean, I don't want to say every single one, but just about every single one uh, is, is there because they are professing something other than the truth. And this can be very hard because a lot of times deceit uh, looks a lot like truth. And it's very hard to discern and to, to navigate uh, between that. And you hear things that, that sound right but woven into those things a lot of times are seeds of deceit uh, that undermine the gospel or undermine the the truth of the word of God or undermine the deity of Christ or some other uh, foundational doctrine that is so uh, very, very important. Look at John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 31. And here Jesus speaks about the truth. John 8, 31. He says, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then then ye are my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. I think this is important to understand that when we are saved, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit begins immediately to lead us into truth, right? We know from John 16 that he is the spirit of truth. And so he and his, his, one of his uh, works that he does with us is lead us to truth, which means that he has to essentially clear our mind of the deceit that we have gathered up to that point in our life and begin to push those things away and, and cultivate in us an appetite and understanding for truth. I, I, think, I think that takes time. Those are things that don't just happen. Uh, and so understanding how to hear or feel or respond to the prodding and the leading of the Holy Spirit is something that is, is a delicate work. It's not something that, that I think we naturally just come to. But as we respond to that truth, as the Holy Spirit works in our heart, as we become more sensitive to him, the more of the word of God that we have in our heart, the more faith that we have, the more we are sensitive to the Holy Spirit, the more he's able to work in us, right? And it's this effect that begins to cleanse and to purify and clear our mind. And, and we start to understand more and more. And what happens is, somebody that you're listening to on TV or on YouTube or reading a book or something, you, 
You're, you enjoy them, and then one day you're reading it, and you go, huh, that doesn't feel right. Or you hear something, and you go, you know what? That doesn't sound right. I wonder, what, I wonder why. And uh, what you ultimately learn is that that's the Holy Spirit working and purifying and cleansing you and, and leading you into truth. Verse 32, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Again, I love how John uh, here speaks of, of truth in this objective yet personal way, right? And you shall know Jesus, and Jesus shall make you free. Verse 33, they answered him, we be Abraham's seed. And we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, you shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Notice how he uses son and truth interchangeably here. Right? You could put truth in there. If the truth, therefore, shall make you free, you should be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me, because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. There are a lot of religious people who get upset when we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you say, why would a religious person get upset over... The, the teaching of Jesus. How does that happen? And it's, it's this exact point. It's Jesus saying, you are of Abraham's seed, but my word's not in you. Right? The truth isn't in you. You are rejecting the truth. And so many Bible teachers, um, those who profess to know God, those who profess to speak for God, so many uh, do, have no place in the truth, and the truth has no place in them. And they're speaking totally of their own. And it's very, very dangerous for us. We have to discern uh, the truth. Verse 39, they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. Of course, here he's saying, what would be the, what would be the work of Abraham? It would be to embrace the Messiah. Right? It would be to call Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, to recognize it, to see the truth that is uh, right in front of him and to uh, embrace him for it. But now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. So here, Jesus, this is a statement of his deity of his superiority over Abraham. Right? Their claim was, we are Abraham's seed. We are free. We don't need anyone to set us free. Jesus is saying, I am better than Abraham. I heard directly from God, right? because I am God. And Abraham had to hear it secondhand. Ye do the deeds of your father, they said unto him, uh, ye do the deeds of your father, they uh, of course, this is a, a statement of condemnation, right? The, their father, of course, is the devil. Then said they to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. 
why would they say to why would they say to um, why would they say to Jesus that they were not born of fornication? Why is that a why is that an accusation? What do you think, Paula Jail? Right. Feels like uh, kind of common, doesn't it? Somebody knows something about you and they wait until they <laughs> comes in handy to throw it in your face, right? Here is Jesus, of course. Mary was pregnant with child before she was married, and before, and that was a very public thing. It was a thing that would have been well known and well documented. Um, the the scribes and Pharisees, religious leaders and common people, of course, would be saying, you know, who is this guy? He thinks he's a rabbi, and he was, you know, uh, was born out of fornication. Um, all sorts of different things you could imagine. What they're trying to do now is because they cannot, they cannot argue with his truth, his statements, they have to resort to a personal attack, right? Personal slander. Jesus said unto them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came, came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. And then he says this, and I hear this in just a pitiful, tender voice. I don't hear this in an angry voice. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. And then he says this, ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. And, uh, you know, obviously it goes on. What an incredible passage, incredible dialogue Jesus has there and ultimately diagnoses the real root of their problem. Right? They were followers of the devil ultimately accomplishing the work of the devil. Now, what I think is, is important to understand here is this doesn't mean that they were going to the Wicca church, Wiccan church, right? They weren't wearing black robes or wearing black face paint, right? They weren't doing that. They were actually very religious people, very, very, very outwardly religious people. They were very sincere in their religion, following it. But what he's saying is, is not, oh, you're of the church of Wicca. What he's saying is that you're accomplishing the same things that the devil is trying to accomplish, which is to stop me, to stop the truth. And ultimately, he wants to kill me because he thinks that's what's going to end my ministry. And what he doesn't know, of course, is that that was God's plan. And so he's saying you're accomplishing the same thing. You know, when we talk to those who don't believe and those who actively speak against the truth of the Bible, I don't, you know, I think we obviously want to do that in love and tenderness and care, but I think we also have to understand that many times they are working and their work is in line with the work of the devil. Many times I think we forget that. When, when you see Mormons walking on the street, they may be well-intentioned. They may be good people. But they are deceiving people and leading people to hell, which is exactly 
in line with and the intent of the devil himself. They are doing the work of the devil. That's hard, I think, sometimes for us to comprehend and to understand and to see. Anytime that anyone would try to diminish the gospel or try to change the gospel or, or try, to, try to water it down in some way, try to be, make it more appealing. We, uh, on Monday night, we looked at, uh, uh, some, we looked at an article from a, from a recent guy who was, he was writing a little bit, but coming from sort of that mega church movement that exists in America today. And, um, you know, you just see these churches that, <clears throat> that perhaps when they started had a right intention, but today they're just so focused on trying to figure out how to grow or how to get more people. They're willing to, to, to leave everything about the Bible aside and trying to just simply entertain and make people feel good. And that's aligning with the work of the devil. Like the devil wants people to not embrace the truth, to not clearly understand what is the truth and come to their ability to receive it. Instead, uh, so many are being deceived and feeling like, oh, I, I, you know, I go to church and I do this or whatever, and I, you know, I, I, guess, I guess I'm saved and I guess everything's fine. Uh, instead of really being told the truth from the word of God. Um, and so it's... Um, like it was happening in Christ's time, it's happening now. We want to be a people like Christ who speak without any guile, without any deceit. And I think specifically the application tonight for me is, of course, we know we shouldn't be lying. We shouldn't, I think that's all true. But really specifically when it comes to our presentation of the gospel, we can't, we can't, we can't water that down. We can't hold it back. We don't like to say, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ... You, and you die, you're going to hell, right? We don't like to say that. But I think that there are times and places and in the right situations where it needs to be said. People need to understand that this is a life or death for all of eternity decision. Uh, and we do not have the right to edit the gospel to make it more comfortable for us to speak or easier for people to receive, right? We don't have the authority to edit. We have the authority to speak. And uh, we need to make sure that we have no guile in our mouth when we speak the gospel. And that it is clear and that it accurately represents the truth. Okay? Any comments or questions about that? Yes, Bill. Bill.